Hello and welcome to Sip Sip Hooray, the podcast for people who love wine and want to learn more about it and the interesting people making it. Wine is a beverage we all enjoy at our leisure, sipping it around the table, on the patio, poolside, but the work that goes into making that beverage we all enjoy is staggering, from the vineyards to the cellars and beyond, and our guest today knows all about it. She is the daughter of a grape-growing pioneer who came into the family business and then put her own stamp on it, growing it from vineyard operations into also making wine. Heidi Scheid of Scheid Family Wines is a dynamo who says she's available 18-7, 18-7 because, you know, sleep. And we are thrilled that she made time for us today. We're eager to learn about her passion for the business, the vines, and also caring for the earth. We are the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm Mary Babbitt. And I'm Mary Orland. And today we are here with Heidi Scheid at the family winery in the Salinas Valley. This is where the grape growing operation started, that her father started, began, and eventually grew to become the largest all-local winery in the Monterey AVA. Heidi's a busy, busy woman. Um, The winery produces eight different labels, and she's recently come out with some innovative bottlings, including a lower alcohol wine and some wine spritzers. Um, In addition to all this, Heidi has been very active in the local wine community. She's um, recently been a recipient of the Wine Enthusiast Magazine Wine Person of the Year, year star award and somehow in her spare time she is a avid hiker who summited mount kilimanjaro for her 50th birthday 50 is a big number around here at shide because this year 2022 is shide's 50th anniversary so we have lots to talk about including um, innovation when it comes to sustainability and we've got to talk about the wind turbine that um, stands proud and tall over the Shide Winery. So Heidi, welcome to Sip Sip Hooray. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So how do you do it all? (laughs) I'm kind of like blown away just by all the things that I've heard. Sometimes it's not pretty. Yeah, you know what? I, I have the most amazing team here at Shy Family Wines. I mean, it really comes down to the people. We all know that. And we have fantastic teams here in the vineyard, in the winery, sales and marketing. So um, it's really a joy to work in this industry and to work with the people that I have the good fortune to spend my time with. Mm-hmm. And have, as you've grown into the business over the years, how has what you've done evolved? Like, where did you start in the business with your dad and, and where did you move to? Well, I started um, at Shy Family Wines um, when I was 28 years old. So, um, oh gosh, now I'm going to give away my age. But no, you don't have to. I've been here be for a while, sure. a very That's long right. time. But 28, you didn't start right out of <laughs> so school. So I didn't start right out, um, mm-hmm. which I think is really an advantage. I mean, we're a family-owned and operated business. My brother, Scott Scheid, is president and CEO of the company. Um, but we both spent time outside of the company. We didn't really grow up in the business um, I worked in restaurants. Um, I got my first job when I was 12 and a half. I worked in restaurants all through high school and college. I went back to school and got my MBA and then went to work for Ernst & Young. And it was when I was on maternity leave with my um, firstborn that I came into the offices um, at Chai Family Wines. My brother had joined the company a few years before that. 
started to do some work while I was on maternity leave and then just never went back to Ernst & Young and, and stayed on. Um, I started on the finance side, um, strategic planning, and then moved into the CFO role. But in the last you know, 15 years or so, it's been much more sales and marketing. Fantastic. So when you were growing up, was there any encouragement from your father for you to follow in his footsteps and go into the family winery business? You know, the encouragement from my father, probably to both Scott and myself, was um, to to be good at business, you know, to just understand how to run a business, not necessarily to come into this business and, and take it over in the future, but to have a solid business background. He very much encouraged me to be a business major in college and to go back to get get my MBA. I wanted to be an English major. And he said, why do you want to do that? And I said, because I love writing and I love reading. And he said, well, you can keep reading and writing, but get a, get a business major because then you'll never be without a job. Um, so yeah, neither Scott nor I was really raised thinking that we were going to join a family business. This business was very different back then. Um, as you mentioned, it's our 50 year anniversary. We started off in 1972. My father founded this company, but he started the company as a grape grower, um, supplying 100% of our grapes to other wineries. It wasn't until the early 2000s that we really kind of evolved into a winery operation. And then it wasn't on 2011 that till 2011 that we really started producing brands using a lot of our, our grapes and wine. Uh, um, talk about your father. He um, is a pioneer in the area, very, very well respected. He also, from what you were saying about him wanting you to get a business degree so you would have a well-paying job, he sounds like a very practical man. He is very practical. You know, he's actually writing our 50-year history right now. It's up to about 46 pages. I was just reading it yesterday evening. Um, he's 90 years young. He just turned 90 in February. And he's really an extraordinary man. He's the quintessential entrepreneur. He started many different businesses um, in his life, from biotechnology to grape growing um, to many other businesses. And he just has an insatiable curiosity about different businesses. Uh, you know, Scott and I both just feel extraordinarily lucky that he chose to get into the vineyard business. He was really one of the pioneers of the grape growing region in the early 70s, and that this business has withstood the, t- the test of time and given us an opportunity to continue the legacy. And when he got started in the vineyard business, uh, where was he selling the grapes? Was it all local or was he selling them all over the place? And, and what did it look like back then? Um, very, very different. <laughs> when he first started the company, he actually went out and got a 30-year grape purchase contract before he even planted one acre of vineyards. So he put together this whole deal where he was identifying land, identifying the buyer, getting the financing, and he kind of put it all together before he took that big to really get into the business. That's how my dad goes about things. It's great. They're great lessons for us to learn this next generation and and the people coming up underneath us as well, that it really is all about the planning and getting all of your ducks in a row before you take that giant leap off the cliff and commit all those dollars. So back then it was a 30 year great purchase contract um, with Almaden. Okay. And and it did last indeed for 30, 30 harvests Mm -hmm. um, so that those contracts ended um, in 2005. Wow. And so what was the inspiration 
to make the transition from being solely grape growers to also producers? Well, when those contracts ended in 2005, we had a lot of grapes. Those original contracts with Almaden had ended up, you know, that they changed hands and companies a few times and they had ended up with Diageo and Diageo decided they weren't going to be in the wine business anymore. So we had a lot of grapes coming back at us. It was probably, you know, 60 or 70% of our production was going to them. So we needed to pivot pretty quickly. Um, we were talking to a lot of other potential winery clients and most of them wanted grapes or wanted wine instead of grapes. And so we said, oh, okay, yeah, we could do that. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and we had to kind of figure out how to do that. So we started making wine at uh, different custom crush facilities. And after we did that for a few years, we decided that we really needed to take that next big leap and build a winery. And so we did that in 2005. And then we took kind of that next big leap in 2011. Also really as a reaction to market conditions, the grape and wine market is very cyclical when you're on the supply side. You're very much bound to the fate of the wineries that you're working with. So if they're facing a price squeeze, then you feel it. If they're uncertain about the future, they're not going to be signing long-term contracts with you. So these 30-year contracts that we had built this company on started getting shorter and shorter and shorter to the point where it was difficult to get a winery to commit for two years, let alone you know 10 or 15 years very difficult to build a long-term business and to feel good about the future that you're building for yourselves and all of your employees. And so that's why we really decided to take that next leap and start creating our own brands and building that side of the business. Yeah. And tell me about that journey. How has that gone? Uh, you were already so well known in the area. Did that help? Did you know having an established Not name? really. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's such an entirely different business, three-tier distribution. And it's really a chicken and egg problem because in order to really build some volume, you need to get into major retailers. In order to get into major retailers, you need major distributors. In order to get into major distributors, you need volume. So we were, you know, in 2011, a little naive, I think, um, in how long it was going to take us or how difficult it was going to be. Um, we hired a gentleman who's who's with us um, still, John Holder, our current VP of um, sales, super smart guy, very energetic. Um, for a while, it was just John and me trying to figure out, um, okay, how do you make a label? Like we, what we figured out very quickly is the production side of it is actually the easy side of it. The sales and marketing and dealing with the three-tier system is the difficult one. Sure, because but, you've got to get the distribution and that's the challenge. That is the challenge. We did a lot of, and we still do, a lot of exclusive and private labels. Um, you mentioned that we have eight brands. We have eight kind of what we call our global brands that we distribute, um, you know, kind of to the broad market. But we also have about 50 different exclusive and private labels. And, and we've probably done 120 over the last 10 years with various retailers around the country, around the world, actually. You know, in other countries, we do it as well. So in 2011, we were producing 2,500 cases. Um, this year, we'll come close to doing a million. Wow. That's so a huge leap. It is. It's enormous. So let me be clear. You're actually making wine for all these different labels? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we actually, you know, create the label ourselves. So, you know, we own the brand name and create the labels. And so, you know, for instance, we do a lot of business with Kroger. 
And so we have various exclusive labels that are only available within the Kroger network of stores. Oh, interesting. Wow, that must keep you busy. Um, yes, we have a much bigger sales and marketing department than we did back in 2011. <laughs> We've grown from two to, you know, about 30 people with our sales and marketing teams combined. I read that you are, you divide your time. You're down in Manhattan Beach. We're in Monterey County today, yes. but you're down in Manhattan Beach. Um, and so are you able to work down there as well? Or are you coming back and forth to work? Um, well, so yes, I mean, how lucky am I to have <laughs> a home base of Manhattan Beach and then my home away from home of Monterey. Um, I work out of my home office in Manhattan Beach. I'm up here most weeks or I'm usually somewhere um, in, in the country or the world most weeks. And so I have an office up here and usually spend Monday and Friday in Manhattan Beach and Tuesday through Thursday up here. And as a woman in the industry, traditionally, this has been a very male oriented industry. So how has it been for you as a woman in this world? And are you, do you feel that you're paving the way for other women to follow you? And uh, I mean, as a leader, a female leader in the wine industry, that's a pretty cool place to be. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely changed over the 30 years that I've been in the business. I remember going to this event. They used to call it Grape Day. It's now the Unified Wine and Grape Symposium. But (laughs) so much fancier. (laughs) Yeah. I liked Grape Day. And uh, it was, you know, like at some, you know, hotel in the ballroom. And then there was a bathroom break. And so I walk out into the hallway and there's like 30 men waiting to get into the men's bathroom. And I just walked right into the women's bathroom. And I'm like, well, this is a nice change. You you never see that. I was literally the only person in the women's bathroom. Wow. Um, And so, yes, it's changed. Um, You know, I want to see it change more and it will change more. I mean, these, these changes are ongoing. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's great. You know, part of the problem is, is really letting people know that this industry even exists. Like most people don't grow up in the industry or don't grow up Mm -hmm. in their childhood thinking, Oh, I really want to become a wine executive. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) So like you said, letting people know that it's, there's more to it than just growing the grapes or making the wine. You have to have, the um, back of the house, if you will, to use a restaurant term, to support all those activities. Yeah, you know, that's absolutely right. And so, you know, doing a good job recruiting and making sure that you're getting a diverse um, candidate pool is really important. So in addition to all the work that's being done with the different brands, um, Shide has also been an innovator and a leader in many aspects. Um and including some of the wine styles. And we're going to start tasting a little bit with Heidi. And um, I want you to talk about how you've been putting your stamp on Shy Family Wines. And I think this first one would be a great way to start. Yeah, my, my baby. Your baby. <laughs> so uh, the wine that Mary's talking about is um, Sunny with a Chance of Flowers. So Sunny with a Chance of Flowers is a wine that we launched in mid-2020, so it's pretty new on the market. Um, It's a low-alcohol, zero-sugar, 85 calories per serving wine, 9% alcohol. And um, it's really been um, a project that's been very near and dear to my heart. I have a great emotional attachment to Sunny with a Chance of Flowers. Um, You know, kind of the primary driver behind this wine originally is just that... um, I like drinking wine (laughs) and I like having a glass or two of wine pretty much every evening. 
And I found as I was getting older that it became more and more difficult to like have those two glasses of wine and then wake up at 530 and go for that morning run and don't feel as sharp. Right. Kind of get that brain fog. So true. Yep. So unfortunate, but so true. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, you know, in talking to, you know, my mom, you know, who's 85 and my daughter who is 29, or was 29 at that point when we were having these discussions, um, we all kind of felt the same. And so we started having a lot of internal discussions. John Holder was a huge driver behind this brand. You know, he talked to a lot of different buyers and distributors to see if there would be interest in this category. Um, And just so many things came together to create this brand that I, I just, again, super lucky. My father always says luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And Sunny was definitely that. There was a big, healthy dose of luck in terms of the timing. Your timing. That happened. Yeah, because what you were feeling, many, many other people, not just your family, uh, so many people were starting to think about how can I enjoy this without it kind of knocking me, you know, knocking me out and making me feel sluggish. And um, how can it become a, a not just a special occasion beverage? How can I enjoy it more regularly without doing harm to my body? And, um, and, and you've done it. I mean, this, a low alcohol wine, I think there's a huge, now there's a growing market for that, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, they call it the better for you segment. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's actually kind of a name for the category that is recognized by people within the industry. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting. We launched it um, right in the middle of, co- well, right at the beginning of COVID in um, summer of 2020. And so we'd already kind of pushed this through into production when COVID hit in mid-March. And for this first couple of months of COVID, if we can think back that far, people were consuming a lot of alcohol <laughs> and like they wanted to get kind of buzzed. Stop the world them. and let me off. Yeah, so yeah. we're thinking, hmm, is a 9% alcohol really the one way to go? Maybe we need to make it 19% alcohol. Maybe we're kind of, you know, looking <laughs> right. at this the wrong, the wrong way. Um, but then things really settled down and there's been this kind of movement that's happened where people are embracing moderation and in some cases, you know, no alcohol or, you know, a lot of people who consume no alcohol products also consume low and regular. It's very occasion based. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what we're seeing more and more of is, you know, Hey, it's Friday night. Okay, great. I'm going to have the 14% alcohol wine. It's Tuesday or Wednesday night. I want the 9%. It's Sunday brunch. I'll take the lower alcohol or maybe I'll have a mocktail. So People are, um, consumers, I think, are much more savvy these days yeah. than in previous generations. Agreed. We didn't even think this way before. Yeah. It was all just alcohol. We want right? the perfect drink at each occasion. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> We're getting pickier. Yeah. So how does it work, just you know, not to get too technical or geeky, but how do you keep the alcohol level low without sacrificing flavor? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I wonder the same thing. Yeah. Well, it all starts with the fruit. So flavors are made in the vineyard. We're very lucky that we have over 3,000 acres of estate vineyards in the Monterey Appalachian. And so the grapes for Sunny come from our estate vineyards. So we harvest the grapes at, um, at full maturity, just as we would for a regular wine, bring them into the winery and make the wine. Right now, we're um, tasting the Sunny with a Chance of Flowers of Sauvignon Blanc. Which is so, delicious. Yeah. So prior to alcohol removal, it's probably in the low 13%, you know, around 13.2%. And then we put it through a reverse osmosis system, which is a very gentle filtration that removes the alcohol very gradually. 
and we're really able to kind of test it every step of the way to make sure that it's retaining the flavors and the aromas. And then very importantly, the mouthfeel and the texture, mm-hmm. because that's... You, you know, get that from alcohol. Yep. You get that from alcohol. You get weight from alcohol. You get mm-hmm. sweetness from alcohol. Sure. So, I mean, it really was, um, you know, our winemaking and vineyard teams are the best in the business. We presented them with a terrific challenge by saying, okay, we want it to be 9% alcohol, um, but we also want it to be zero sugar. Was there experimentation at different lower levels? Like, did you try seven or eight or nine or, or ten? Absolutely. We did exactly that. We did what we called sweet spotting, where we started at seven and seven percent, seven and a half, eight, and we tested all the way up to 12. And we really felt that at nine percent, um, consumers were going to get a substantial reduction because it's about, you know, 30 to 35 percent fewer calories and less alcohol than kind of your average wine. Mm-hmm. But we were still kind of across the board for any varietal that we wanted to produce under the sunny line that we were still going to be able to retain the flavors and the aromas and all of those wine things that we look for. Well, and when you talk about the sugar piece, um, will you explain to our listeners, sugar isn't necessary, isn't added to the winemaking process, but when you say you have a no sugar wine, what do you mean by that? Zero residual sugar. And I'm so glad that you asked that question because yes, I think when we talk about sugar and wine, people get the impression that we're dumping bags of cane sugar in there and that does not happen. (laughs) That is not allowed. That is illegal (laughs) in California. Um, so what is happening is, um, you know, the grapes, um, on the vine are accumulating sugar. That's what makes fruit sweet. And when we start fermentation, that sugar is converted to alcohol. And so when you get a zero sugar wine, it means that you have converted all of the sugar into alcohol and you have zero residual sugar. Okay. Got it. So all of the natural sugar that naturally occurred in that grape has been taken out. Yes. Or, and, and the higher the sugar of grape that you start with, the higher the resulting alcohol. Absolutely. So wine like a Riesling that is sweet, you know, you might have, you know, four grams of residual sugar in that. That means that that wine has not been fermented to dryness. It's that that fermentation process mm-hmm. has been halted at a certain level to retain the um, the sugar and the sweetness. And, and most wines that people are going to come across in the United States, especially, are fermented dry. There's red blends um, that um, are a little bit sweeter. Those intentionally have stopped fermentation at a point where there is a little bit of residual sugar left over. But I would say probably still the majority of the wines that people are going to come across are fermented dry. Yeah, especially but, yeah, especially with like Sauvignon Blanc or mm-hmm. you know Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Or, well, so, with maybe a few exceptions. <laughs> so I think the innovation here is reducing the alcohol level, which also contributes to the number of calories in the glass. If, mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, alcohol. The calories from wine comes almost entirely from the alcohol. Well, let me take another sip. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Drink up, Mary. So um, we're looking at eighty-five calories per five ounce pour, and that's an important. Thing. Um, most white wines will clock in about 120, 130 calories per five ounce pour. Yeah. I think, you know, people tend to, um, you know, once you get beyond a five ounce pour, which is super easy to do, um, you know, <laughs> then you've got to add a few calories there. Yes. Yeah, you don't count them, but they, they <laughs> your thighs do. <laughs> <laughs> That's <is> very true. <laughs> but well, see, after drinking Sunny, you have a couple glasses, then you can go like for a nice long walk in the morning. Right. Or you're not run, just wiped right, out. Exactly. So. And I love the name. Tell me about the name, Sunny with a Chance of Flowers. Well, I met um, a wonderful woman named Teresa Scripps 
um, who is a fantastic creative director, and she's the one who brought the name to me um, sometime in 2019. And I fell in love with it when I first saw it. We were introduced by another wonderful woman, Michaela Rodino, um, who used to be the president and CEO of St. Superi, one of my wine mentors. <clears throat> and um, Teresa and I just said, okay, we got to figure out like how we're going to work together because this name really needs to be shown to the world. At that point, we really hadn't conceptualized a better for you wine, you know, a low alcohol, low calorie wine. And just through a, a lot of luck and opportunity, those concepts kind of came together. Beautiful. Well, it is a great wine. It's a great mm-hmm. tasting yes. wine. I, I really like Sauvignon Blanc. And, you know, I'm not tasting anything that's been, I'm not tasting anything that's missing. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And I think that what, that's a huge compliment to you guys. Thank You've you done so this much. without leaving it lacking. Yeah. Yeah. It we always delicious. say it's, you know, have your cake and eat it too. It's, it's that kind of a wine. <laughs> and then have another piece of cake. <laughs> and then have another piece of cake. <laughs> and another glass of wine. <laughs> So, and um, did I read correctly that you are also doing wine, some type of spritzers? So we are working with um, a great guy named Josh Rosenstein, um, who created a brand called Hoxie. And we just started um, working in partnership with him to bring Hoxie to the world. They're great um, dry wine spritzers. Um, they are 90 calories per can. They come in fantastic flavors like grapefruit, elderflower, and lemon ginger rosé in um, 250 milliliter cans. So those are starting to become available um, you know, throughout California and will be expanding into the U.S. And who's the consumer for that? Um, well, we are sitting here at this table. <laughs> um, you know, probably trends a little bit lower. I think it's um, people who maybe don't enjoy, um, and this is not really a knock against the hard seltzer category, but there is a certain artificiality with the with the seltzers, the hard seltzers that maybe aren't appealing once you get a little bit older and you start to become a little more discerning with your alcohol beverage choices. And so Hoxie is really a level up. It's a much more upscale version of that. It's made with um, very high quality natural es- extracts and estate wine grapes from Monterey. And so it's just a very elevated version. So I'm not really a hard seltzer drinker myself, but I, I can I drink the heck try. out of Hoxie. <laughs> you can do, you like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The lemon ginger rosé, so refreshing. Mm-hmm. The flavor is very subtle. It's crisp and cleansing and really nice because it's um, 5% alcohol. So it's Even great, better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's really refreshing on a hot summer day, um, you know, in the evening when you just want a little something. Yeah. So, yep. I like that Hoxie. Oxy. Yeah, cute. Fantastic. Uh, well, so this is fantastic. You have more wine to pour for us. And I do. While you're doing that, would you mind telling us about some of your efforts, um, Shide's efforts, to uh, be good stewards of the land and some of the things you guys go through to um, to be uh, to take care of things, be sustainable, uh, some of the energy-saving stuff you're doing? I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, there is. I mean, sustainability, we could talk for an hour just about that, but... You know, it's been important from day one of this company, something that my father always felt very strongly about, not just in terms of the environment, but in terms of how we treat our our employees and how we give back to our local community. Um, With regard to the environment, all of our uh, state vineyards are sustainably certified under the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance, as well as, as SIP certified. We were the first Global Gap certified vineyard in the United States. What is Global Gap? 
Global GAAP is an international standard, so much bigger in Europe. I mean, it's the same type of programs as CSWA, where they're looking at kind of the holistic, not just the vineyards, but also how you treat your labor force. Um, and it's more of an international standard. And then, of course, you mentioned the, the wind turbine, um, which is probably our most visible symbol of sustainability. Um, our wind turbine is a 400-foot-tall wind turbine that went operational in mid-2017, and it supplies actually 200% of the energy, energy that we need to power our entire winery campus. So our, our offices, the winery, the bottling and warehouse, the entire thing is powered by that single wind turbine, as well as the excess energy going to power 125 homes in our local community. It's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> wow, talk about taking care of the community. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's a very cool thing because um, solar is not really a great option in the Salinas Valley because we get a lot of fog and wind. So you got the moisture combined with a lot of dirt flying around. Um, but wind is fantastic. Um, the wind turbine works twenty four seven. So. If it's windy at 10 p.m. at night, you know, you're going to be able to capture that renewable energy and put it back onto the grid. So it's a really efficient way to, use, um, to generate renewable energy. And why was that important to you guys to undertake that? You know, continuous improvement is one of our core values. Um, I get asked that question about, you know, so like, is that kind of it? Or, you know, why do you do that next thing? And it's just really a part of our DNA. It's our company ethos. We're just always looking at small things that we can do. One of Al's favorite sayings is elephants are made of peanuts. You know, you just keep doing all those little things and they add up to something big. And then occasionally you get the opportunity to really grab onto something big, like a wind turbine that makes a huge change, you know, kind of overnight, although it was five years in the planning, so it didn't really happen overnight, but, but like a, a really big symbol, um, which is what very cool about the turbine is, is such a great um, symbol of sustainability. But there are so many small little things that we're doing every day, little incremental changes that we look at all the time. So a lot behind the scenes that aren't so visible to the public. Well, what was, the, what was the reaction when you guys said, we're going to build this wind turbine? What did people say? Were they like, what? Do we want that? I mean, what, well, there what are, do you want to do? There's a couple other turbines um, in the Salinas Valley. So we're certainly, I think we were the fourth one to, um, to become installed. So it was really just a matter of going through the process. Um, Scott Scheid and Kurt Golnick, um, who just retired this year, he was our chief operating officer for 33 years. They were the two main driving forces behind getting that wind turbine. There was a lot of environmental studies that had to be done and a, a lot of background stuff that had to be um, a lot of groundwork that had to be laid. But the, the reaction now from the community, enjoying the power? Yes. And- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sweet, sweet power. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. So um, we have another glass of wine in front of us. So let's chat about this. Yes, this is our Metz Road. Um, we're drinking the Chardonnay. Um, our Metz Road is a single vineyard wine that comes from a Riverview Vineyard in Soledad, which is our northernmost vineyard. It's a Beautiful, Burgundian, cool climate, gorgeous vineyard, truly one of our favorites. Um, and something kind of cool that we do there is we actually have a little uh, kind of trailer winery. Um, it's actually a shipping container that we put in the middle of that vineyard in order to be able to do an in-vineyard native yeast fermentation. 
Um, so native yeast means that you're not um, adding a commercial yeast. If you bring those grapes into a larger winery where commercial yeast is being used, then it will sort of automatically become inoculated because yeast is airborne and microscopic and it would be very, well, would be impossible to do a true native yeast fermentation, which is why we created another winery inside the vineyard. That's so cool. Yeah, it is kind of cool. <laughs> and so, you know, we're a large producer. As I said, we're going to, you know, bump up against a million cases this year. But Mitz Road is one of our fun pet projects because secretly we're all total wine geeks in our company. And we just wanted to create this beautiful um, Burgundian style Chardonnay. Um, we just got a 99 points best of class at the California State Fair for this wine. So wow. it's a wine that we're really proud of and why I wanted to pour it for you guys today because it's one of my favorites in our yeah. portfolio. Oh, it's, it it's, like... this passion project has worked out well. It's yeah. great. <laughs> it is fantastic. So well balanced and mm-hmm. just really very expressive of the fruit. Yeah, just lovely and in the mouth. Great. I'm looking at the label in owl it is an owl um kind of one of those nods to sustainability um we have about 250 owl boxes around all of our vineyards and so owl boxes are um a natural sustainable way to control the rodent population rather than having to use old school methods of poison baiting and things like that that can be harmful to the soils um we use owl boxes and we put those boxes out they have to be Built according to very certain specifications, but you build them and they will come. Isn't that great? Yeah. I love that. My kids built owl boxes in school. And uh, so we just put them on fence to- on the top of fences and stuff around our yard. <laughs> and did you get any owls? Yes, we do have owls. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, I mean, not, not regularly and they're late at night. We don't get to see them much, right? Yeah. You know, they, they're doing their own thing, but yeah. it's a cool thing. So Heidi... How long have you been hiking and where did that interest come into your life? To summit Mount Kilimanjaro. Oh my gosh, it's like, you know, bow down to that. Well, they call Kilimanjaro every man's Everest because everybody can do it. It's just a really long walk uphill. (laughs) No, I (laughs) think have a lot of patience. I think it's a little bit harder than that. Did you did you feel all right? Did you get sick from the altitude? Um, I did not get sick. I was um again lucky. Uh I, I did an eight day cruise to the top so I think taking a little more time you can do it in five but I did the eight days so I had a little more time to acclimate um, I started hiking after my kids were a little bit older so I have three kids and um, you know kind of those years when they were all in sports and school and activities and I mean that just like is a whole big blur it is yeah I basically stopped exercising I think for about 12 years and exercise used to be I was a runner before that and a tennis player and then I kind of just stopped because I just didn't have the time between work and um and the kids and then when I kind of got to a place in my life where I had a little more space for myself I started hiking and just found that um I really loved it it really helped not just my body but very much getting my mind where it needed to be. And so was it, you were having a big birthday and you're like, this is the challenge I'm going to put out there for myself. Yeah. I had done a few years before that. I had done Mount Whitney here in California, um, which was fantastic. And I don't even really know how I came up with Mount Kilmer. I, it, I think I just read something about somebody mm-hmm. else doing it and went like, Oh, that sounds cool. My 15th birthday was coming up. I called one of my best friends um, from, from my childhood. who was also turning 50 um, the same year. And she said, yeah, I'll do it. And so we decided we would do it. 
That's so fun. And how do you prepare for a climb like that? You like lots. <laughs> but you got to find hills. <laughs> yeah. you gotta... I mean, Manhattan Beach isn't known for it. So you got the tree section, but it's not that hill. <laughs> oh, my God. I mortified my children. So I got the backpack that I was going to have to carry there, and I filled it up with bags of rice, big things of rice. Uh-huh. And I got my hiking boots and my hiking poles, and... I would hike up and down the hills. So it is, you know, there's like a hill down to the beach. Yeah. It's about like three blocks long. And so I would start at the top, hike down to the strand, go one street over and hike back up, then go one street over and hike back down. And I would do that for like four hours at a time. And my kids would get like texts from their friends and be like, I just saw your mom. What's up with your mom? (laughs) (laughs) So Mom, could you please stop doing that? What's funny is I met a couple other people who were, preparing for Whitney or other hikes as well. So it's kind of a thing. You just got to, you got to get used to the shoes. You got to get used to the length of time. I mean, besides being in good shape, it's a mental game. Did you walk in the sand at all? The sand dune. Yes. Um, You do know Manhattan. I grew up down there. Well, there's a sand dune (laughs) that is just brutal. And um, so, yeah, I would do the sand dune up and down 12 times. Mm -hmm. And then I did... You know, like once a month, I would drive somewhere and do a hike, like San Jacinto, and I did Whitney again. And um, so the girlfriend, my girlfriend, Linda, Linda Rao, um, Linda and I would meet once a month and do uh, some, find a, a peak over 10,000 feet, and we would do that in preparation. Once you've done something like Kilimanjaro, do you now need to up the ante and then find another <laughs> peak to summit or I something? Can, I kind of wanted to do that. Are you going to do It's Aquanagua. America. I would love to do that. That's I would love to do that. My problem is I get very cold. It's mm-hmm. very cold. Climb. It's very, it's a very I didn't cold do it, climb. but one of my best friends did it, but she wasn't able to summit. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cold. That one's, I think about 22,000 feet um, or maybe, yeah, a little over 21. Um, I looked into that. I felt like I was going to freeze to death on Kilimanjaro. And it, I mean, there's, it's cold. It's very cold. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give myself a little bit of credit. It is very cold. But anything colder than that, I was convinced I was going to die. Like on, on the summit, I was about 45 minutes from the summit. And I oh told gosh. my um, guide, James, I said, I think I'm I think I'm dying. Oh, my gosh. And, and I actually did think I was dying. I was kind of okay, though. I was like, you know, it's just it's just the way I think the altitude was messing mm-hmm. with my head. I was kind of yeah. like, I'm good. Like, I just She's think I'm going to die. Like, I should checking out up here. <laughs> but I didn't die. Good. It was you know, one of the best moments of my life, you know, making it. So you got to experience and and have that joy. Yeah. Oh, good. Totally. It was great. It was a great, I mean, just, yes, I could talk about it for hours. What what an accomplishment. Yeah. Very impressive. Thank you. Well, anyone who's listening, you should totally do it. (laughs) It really is attainable to anybody. It really, with the right training. And Mm -hmm. um, like I said, it's mostly a mental game of really, and to build your mental bucket, you just need, hike for many hours and you kind of get used to the with the rice mind numbing <laughs> boredom and the borderline the pain <laughs> with the rice yeah go out and buy some rice <laughs> all right we've got one more bottle here to share uh these are really i always hate pouring out good wine that's okay we'll make more <laughs> is that the old fritos uh slogan <laughs> don't worry we'll make more <laughs> oh, thank you um, so this wine we are tasting is our Scheidt Vineyards 2018 Reserve Pinot Noir. So, of course, I had to uh, bring a Pinot Noir to try with you guys because um, that's just, you know, really the classic varietal for the Salinas Valley for the Monterey Appalachian. Um, 
So, so we, we do under our Shide Vineyards label, we do seven different Pinot Noirs. Um, this is our reserve one, but we also do a clonal series. We do one from Santa Lucia Highlands. We're total Pinot geeks in this company. We love it. It's, you know, if I had to pick one varietal that, you know, my, my desert island wine, it would definitely be Pinot Noir. Mm, this is great. It's fantastic. Yeah. I just love the aromas. It's just absolutely Beautiful. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's it's a little bit earthy. It's floral. Yeah, yeah, that beautiful cherry berry flavors and um, yeah, I just love Pinot Noirs for their nuance and elegance. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's nice and silky. I love this. It's lovely. Your desert island wine. I love that. <laughs> um, so this still is a family business. Your dad is retired. Yes, Ish. or does he come? Oh, he still works. He yeah, well, some... he's chairman of the board. Okay, um, he. Comes up. He he also lives in Los Angeles, and I'd say he's up here about you know seven or eight times a year. Um, he is very much in touch with. Um, in fact, we were just on a call with him before you guys got here, so he's very much in touch with what's happening. He doesn't work on a day to day basis basis, but right now he's focused on writing our company history. So he's working on that, and uh, yeah, he's. Super cool guy. It sounds like you have a tremendous amount of admiration and, of course, love for him. Can you tell me about some of the qualities that you hope you've picked up from him and, and the ways that he's been a great leader for See, this company? Now you're going to make me cry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, I, you know, one of them I mentioned already is just this insatiable curiosity. I think it's a great way to go about life. My dad is 90 years old and he uh, invests in the stock market every day. He reads things across all industries. Um, he's really remarkable in that, you know, he'll, he'll read something about one industry and how can I apply this to what we're doing? And it, it does fill up our inboxes a lot. He sends a lot of articles our way and then asks us if we read them. Um, but it's just such a great way to approach life, I think. It's just be keep being curious, keep reading, keep asking questions. Um, you know, working for my dad, what I've always appreciated about him is uh, he can change his mind. I think a lot of leaders get pretty entrenched in their own beliefs, uh, what they think they know. And my dad has always been one that if he listens to a compelling argument or the other side of things, then um, he will absolutely change his mind if new evidence is presented to him. And I love that, that flexibility and that openness. Sure. And that's a rare trait. It is. It is. And and one that, you know, I I think about, I, I hope that, I hope that I have that. <laughs> I try. Uh, well, if you're trying, I'm sure you do. And your brother is also a big piece of this business. Too. Yep, absolutely. Scott Scheid, um, he's started here in 1986 and he's president and CEO, um, you know, does a fantastic job. We get along really, really well. I mean, family businesses can be tricky. Um, Scott and I are a little yin and yang. You know, we have different personalities. We kind of deal with different areas of the business, which is great. I think we kind of complement each other really well because we have different personalities and, and different things that we're really interested in pursuing. Yeah. That so helps. how are you all marking the 50th anniversary? Well, we're doing uh, some different things like in um, February, um, the last week of February, we did an event at our winery for all of our employees. And so that was super fun. We actually surprised my father who had turned 90 a couple of weeks before that. Um, with a surprise celebration for him. So that was like kind of a combination 50th anniversary kickoff as well as 90th birthday celebration for him. How great. Which was really, really fun to have all of our employees be able to celebrate both milestones. 
And then, you know, we just have kind of continuing celebrations. Actually, um, this is, what's today? Wednesday, um, this Friday. So two days from now, we're having our annual employee celebration that we do every July. Um, that is um, on Friday afternoon. So we'll have all of our employees gather. We do lunch and then we do a hotly contested volleyball tournament. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> and do you take part in that game? You know, I do every year. This year, I've had a little bit of a back issue. So mm-hmm. I'm sort of, I'm borderline. I'm, I might be getting aged out. This, this <laughs> beach volleyball might be a young person's game. So it sure is. I'm going to just have to cheer on our executive boss. It's divided mm-hmm. into teams. Okay. You've got the vineyard yeah. team and the winery team. And so. And uh, is it is it wine and volleyball? Like you're, you're, no, no, no you're, you're, it's just volleyball. <laughs> okay. It's just, it's just volleyball and it's hilarious. There's a lot of people on the court at one time. There's a lot of trash talking. The referee sometimes can be swayed. It's, <laughs> <laughs> the executive office won for the first time in history last year. So we're trying to retain our title. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yes. Usually, the usually stakes are, the stakes are high. The stakes are very high. Bragging rights for the entire year. <laughs> Well, congratulations for 50 years in the industry here. It's amazing. And as we mentioned at the very beginning, being such pioneers here, as you look to the future, what do you see? Well, you know, we'll continue focusing on branded goods. I mean, we still do supply um, both grapes and wine and custom crush services to other wineries. So we're still very much a supplier to many wineries. But our focus is really on growing the branded goods side of our business um, you know, the Scheid Vineyards label is certainly, you know, our labor of love. We have two tasting rooms and a lot of wine club members, and um, we take a lot of pride in producing those wines. But we'll also continue, you know, working on Sunny with a Chance of Flowers and other brands that we'll push out into the marketplace. People who are coming to visit the Monterey area, whether they're going to Carmel or um, Big Sur, if they want to come taste your wines, where are your tasting rooms? Well, we have our tasting room in Carmel, Car- lovely Carmel by the Sea, uh, located one block of ocean, off of Ocean Avenue on 7th and San Carlos. Super fun tasting room, pet friendly, kid friendly, super nice tasting room staff. So it's always a good time there. And then we also have our tasting room um, at our estate winery location on Highway 101 um, in between the towns of King City and Greenfield. So if you find yourself driving on Highway 101 at 80 miles per hour, <laughs> slow down. Pull over onto the east side, <laughs> and we have a bocce ball court, and you can see the wind turbine. Um, you'll see it has the gigantic American flag, so that's our thing that you can see from the highway, and uh, it's a super great location. Well, speaking and, of the highway, I know, yes. Mary, you wanted to talk about um, the so, uh, homage to your father out that, yes. that can be seen. The, the wine mural by a local artist, it's a larger-than-life depiction of your dad. He's one of several that... Um, show either vineyard scenes or prominent people in the Monterey AVA wine community. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, but we, um, gosh, that's been there for quite a while now. Um, I would say, I think it was my dad's, I can't remember if it was his 60th or his 70th birthday that that was uh, that, that was installed. It was funny, there was a party for him, and Kurt actually drove the top half of him down to my dad's birthday party to <laughs> unveil it to him because it was kind of done secretly. Oh, and he so probably cool. would not have allowed his likeness, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. he's 
he's more humble than that. So um, anyway, yes, um, that's a big mural at our San Lucas Vineyard, um, which we've um, farmed since 1979. Um, there's three people in that mural. My father, um, Rodolfo Sr., um, his son has worked for us for many years. Rodolfo Sr. was one of our tractor drivers from long ago, long since retired. And then we have a woman um, vineyard worker there who just represents um, all of our vineyard workers. Oh, it's so great. And if, for our listeners who are not in the California area, it's so, it, when you come to California and you're driving Highway 101 and you're driving through Monterey County and, and points beyond, there are these, there, there are many wonderful murals out mm-hmm. in the fields, along the highway, kind of telling the story of the, um, uh, the work here, which is vineyard, it's farming, and uh, the people who've made this place such an important part of everybody's, um, oh, everybody's ability to get food, right? All of our our bread baskets, our vegetables, and um, and our wine, our yeah, cellars, salad bowl of the United States, exactly. Yep. Yeah, really cool. Well, Heidi, thank you for taking time out of your super busy schedule to chat with us and to share. Not just your story, but your family's story. And um, congratulations on all the wines. And we're super excited about Sunny with a Chance of Flowers. And um, this is my first time tasting it. And I'm like, I need to get some. (laughs) There's a big chance of flowers, a big bouquet of (laughs) congratulatory flowers. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It has been lovely talking to both of you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And congratulations to your family and happy birthday to your dad, too. Thanks. And sip, sip, hooray. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that's going to do it for our show today. We're so glad you found Sip Sip Hooray podcast. We thank you for listening and we really encourage you to share our podcast with your friends. So go to whatever podcast platform you listen to our pod on and be sure to rate us or review us. It helps other people find our podcast too. And be sure to subscribe to the pod so you don't miss another episode. But there's plenty of episodes we've got on our website from past interviews that you won't want to miss. So visit com. And we're also, of course, on social media. You can find us at Sip Sip Hooray Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas for future podcasts or great finds you want to share with us, just DM us and we'll get back to you. Thank you for listening. I'm Mary Babbitt. Cheers and Sip Sip Hooray. Cheers to you, Mary Orland. Sip Sip Hooray. <laughs>